0: I do want to start by telling you I've got some good news and some bad news. So my good news is before I came, I got some new shoes. Can I get a witness? Say amen. All right. So the bad news is I forgot to pack any socks. Y'all all right with them right there? So I don't mean to cause anybody to fall into temptation. But if you see the ankles, you just look away. All right. That's, that's my encouragement to you. And also, today, I'm excited to be able to close this session out and looking forward to what God's going to really teach every single one of us. So if you've got a Bible, First Peter is where we're going to find ourselves, First Peter chapter 2. And before I begin this message, I do want to tell you, if you don't like it, you can blame Thomas Hammond. He emailed this message to me and told me this is what I was to preach. So anyway, First Peter chapter 2, but excited to be able to open up God's Word. And hadn't you had an awesome time this weekend? I want you to let everybody know who've been leading this, just tremendous stuff going on this weekend. I've been encouraged. I actually uh, sat in the session that Anthony George taught when he uh, talked about inadequacy in preaching. And if there was anything that I needed at this moment, that was the class I needed. Uh, God used that in a tremendous way just to bring a sense of encouragement to my own heart And to realize every single time we have an opportunity to lead, whether it be through worship, whether it be in a small group, or whether it be behind a a pulpit like this, that we are all inadequate. Amen? And whenever we realize our inadequacy, that's when we really drive ourselves to trust fully in the Spirit of God to use us. And that's what we want to do today. You know, Peter is writing this particular letter to followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who were undergoing unbelievable persecution. As a matter of fact, he penned this letter while he was in Rome during the reign of the evil leader whose name was Nero. Nero had a lust to build Rome, but he was landlocked. So what he did is he torched half of the city. Now, obviously, half of the city did not like the fact that their homes were torched and their businesses were as well. And so Nero came up with this idea that he would blame all of the Christians. And immediately, as you begin to look at 1 Peter, you will discover that Peter is writing to a group of individuals who now are on the run. They've been scattered all over the place into Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And in their scattered and their persecuted state, they needed encouragement to focus on living out the great commission of Jesus. And today I would contend that we live in a time frame when we need to be encouraged and we need to encourage others to live out the great commission as well matter of fact, we need to come back to focus on that as Georgia Baptist. I will tell you the church actually has the very best news on the planet. Would you say amen to that? We have the very best news on the planet. We possess the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and resurrection is payment for our sin. That's our message. And we've been called and we've also been commissioned to make sure that we are sharing this news with the world and we are to encourage others to do the exact same thing this is the primary purpose for the existence of God's people on earth. I will say to you this afternoon that God is glorified through the consistent witness of his people on earth. And I would also say that there is a massive problem among Georgia Baptists. Are y'all listening now? A massive problem among Georgia Baptists. We, the church, have been robbed And the question that we have to ask is, what have we been robbed of? Well, at some point in time, the enemy has snuck in, and he has stolen Great Commission ownership from the church. Here's what I would say to you. Georgia Baptist used to be the tip of the spear when it came to evangelism. But for whatever reason, throughout our history, we have walked away from being bold with the gospel. And we've begun to do exactly what Jesus warned us not to do, and that is we've begun to hide our light. Instead of allowing the light of the gospel to permeate through our lives, we've been robbed. Don't get me wrong, the church may have the Great Commission written on their walls. There may be some who've memorized the Great Commission, but that's not really the question. The question is whether the church can quote the Great Commission The question is whether or not we are actually living it out. George Barna in his book, Reviving Evangelism, uncovered a sad reality that shows most practicing Christians today don't support evangelism, and 47% of millennial Christians believe it is flat out wrong to evangelize. So I began to read this, and I asked that simple question, what has happened to us And I can only come down to the conclusion that we've been robbed, and we've been robbed by the greatest thief that our minds could ever perceive, and that is Satan, the enemy himself. He has snuck in to steal, kill, and destroy. And the enemy himself has convinced many Christians to relegate great commission responsibility to clergy or church staff. But there's no doubt that clergy are called to share Jesus with others. However, according to the New Testament, this calling is actually shared by every single follower of Jesus. The moment a person crosses over the line of faith, they become a missionary. The moment a person gives their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, they joined a missionary movement that has one single purpose, and that is to make Jesus known to the nations. That is our calling. But the enemy has stolen that ownership of the Great Commission from us. And really, instead of pointing at others, every believer needs to look in the mirror. We've got to be willing to ask a simple but profound question. Have I been robbed of Great Commission ownership? You See, Peter did not want the personal believers and those who were persecuted to be robbed of Great Commission ownership. So what's fascinating is how Peter brings their calling back to the forefront of their minds. In fact, from our key text this afternoon, we're going to ask a very simple question. How do we take back Great Commission ownership? How do we do it as a church? And also, how do we do it as Georgia Baptist? So with that in mind, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. You've got your Bible there. Say amen. And uh, let me get you to stand in honor of God's word this afternoon. So the Bible says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Let's bow together. Father, this afternoon, our hearts have already been made full. No doubt every single one of us can recount something that we have learned that has been of extreme value and help to our lives this weekend. And for that, we give you glory. But, Lord, at this particular time, I want to pray specifically for your body, the church. Lord, I want to ask you that you would place a genuine passion in every single heart in this room, that we will be about sharing your story. And that together as we leave out of this particular room, that we would go out with a new focus on being intentional about reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, the last thing that we want to do is gather together and talk about the gospel amongst ourselves and not actually share it with those who are far from you. Lord, would you forgive us for putting our focus on things that really don't matter? Would you bring back to the forefront of our minds the reality of eternity? Every single person is going to die, and every single person is going to spend eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. Lord, help us to be faithful as your followers, to make sure we are holding the gospel high. And we'll give you glory for it, and that's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen, so you can be seated. So again, our key question, how do we take back Great Commission ownership? And really what I want to do is just give you three major answers to that one simple question, and we see it directly here from this particular text. The first thing, jot it down, we must not forget who we are in Christ. We must not forget who we are in Christ. So look at your Bible again. We're just going to go verse by verse through this awesome chapter and through the verses we just looked at. But verse 9, he says, "'You are a chosen race.'" Now, the word chosen is a Greek word, which is literally a word that means selected. The term for race is the Greek word genos. It's where we get the idea of genes. It's even the word that's used to describe Gentiles, those who are not Jewish by their race. But it literally describes an ethnic group. You are a chosen race. And this particular race does not coincide with a person's first birth, but rather their second birth. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So indeed, the New Testament church is a selected family. You who have come to Christ by faith were conceived by the seed of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. You've been adopted into an eternal family, and God is now your daddy. I love that. As soon as you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you got a new daddy. Somebody say amen, right? One day I'm going to preach a sermon called, Who's Your Daddy? That's a good one, right? Because as soon as you come to the Lord Jesus, you're adopted into this eternal family. You are a chosen race. Verse 9 again, you're a royal priesthood. Now, the priests of the Old Testament, when you begin to look into their lives, you will discover that they would bring an animal sacrifice to God And they would lay that sacrifice on the brazen altar, and it would be consumed with fire. And the aroma of that particular sacrifice would swell up to the nostrils of a holy God, and it would bring him pleasure. And the aroma of the sacrifice would also encompass the worshiper. And everywhere that worshiper went, the aroma of the sacrifice was upon him. And all of this in the Old Testament pointed directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that Jesus gave himself up for us on the cross at Calvary. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the substitute for our sin, dying in our place, the just for the unjust, paying for our penalty. Paul the Apostle writes in Ephesians 5 too, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You know, the scripture does teach you and I that it pleased God to crush his son. And on the cross at Calvary, when Jesus died, his death brought a sweet-smelling aroma into the portals of heaven. Paul also tells us that when we, by faith, embrace his death on our behalf, the aroma of his sacrifice begins to encompass our lives. Paul the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15, "We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing." So as soon as you came to faith in Jesus, you started smelling differently. And that smell is the fragrant aroma of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. When we gather together and we offer up our worship unto the Lord, that is also a sweet-smelling aroma, but all of that worship is founded upon the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And when we leave that time of worship, we walk out of that place smelling like Jesus to those we come into contact with where we live, work, and play. And this is an aroma that we do not want to cover up. This is an aroma that we desire for others to smell upon our lives. Horatius Bonar. Anybody know Horatius Bonar? He's written some books back in the day. He's no longer with us. You can tell that's not a modern name, can't you? But I thought if I quoted a real old guy, y'all would be like, this dude is smart. (laughs) But I want you to listen to what Horatius Bonar writes. He says, in the cross, we see Jesus, the priest, and priesthood. In the resurrection, we see the king and royal power. To the priest belong the absolution and the cleansing and the justifying. And to the king belongs the impartation of blessing to the absolved, the cleansed and the justified. All that makes Jesus precious and dear to the heavenly father has been transferred to me. You see, in the Old Testament, no priest served as a king. The roles were separated, but in Jesus Christ, both the role of priest and king intersect. And he serves both of those roles with absolute perfection. He both cleanses you, and he also crowns you. He cleanses you through his death. He crowns you through his resurrection. You are a royal priesthood. Notice again verse 9, he says, you're a holy nation. You're holy in the sense that you're a dedicated group. You were conceived by the Word of God, bought by the Son of God, and dedicated to the service of God by the Holy Spirit. And the word nation here, again, is the word ethnos. It gives us the idea of ethnic groups. We are a nation. We are a multitude of people with the same nature, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are actually partakers in the divine nature of the Lord Jesus And what an awesome privilege that is, that God would allow you and I to be partakers in his divine nature. You know, in the days of Paul, and in the days even of Old Testament Scripture, people held so tightly to their ethnic backgrounds in that particular era. It was a big deal to be a Jew. It was a big deal to be a Samaritan. It was a big deal to be a Greek or a Gentile or some other ethnic group. They were a part of a tribe, and they had pride in their tribe. But God's Word says, you're a brand new ethnic group. Are y'all listening? You are a brand new ethnic group. In this group, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You see, God's work in us through the gospel dispels any concept of racism and classism. As people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if they are black, white, Indian, Asian, poor, middle class, or yuppies. We are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are a brand new ethnic group. You're a holy nation. Verse 9 again, you are a people for God's own possession. I love that statement. It reminds me as well, my wife and I have four children at home. The oldest is 16 and the youngest is Younger than 16. I don't remember how old she is, but I love her. We feed her. But we, we've bought gifts for them, right? So Christmas rolls around, their birthday rolls around, we buy them gifts. We want to impress them, right? And uh, anyway, what drives me absolutely nuts is when I buy my child a gift and they pull it out of the box and they're all excited about it, and then the gift doesn't work. First thing that happens to me is I get extremely frustrated. And I think to myself, what a waste of Money. Did you know when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were purchased by the blood of Jesus? And you were brought into the family of God so that you might be the sweet-smelling aroma of Jesus to other people? What a tragedy for God to look upon our churches or look upon our lives. And we be living in such a way that we have become a waste of such a great price. You're a people for God's own possession. The holy God gave the highest price for his beloved church. We are owned by God. So if we're going to take back Great Commission ownership, we've got to remember who we are in Jesus. Secondly, jot this down. We must not forget why we are here. Peter notes again in verse 9, the reason why we are here is so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's the question, why exactly does the church exist? And Peter declares to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that every follower of Jesus is brought into the church at large with a single purpose. We are here that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly does that mean? The word here for proclaim is indeed a special word. It's a term that describes the activity of sharing what is concealed or hidden from the gaze of spectators. You see, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, people are gazing at you. But what you possess in the gospel cannot be perceived simply by gazing at you. You have to proclaim what they cannot see. The word means that you are Advertising Jesus. You are heralding Jesus. You are speaking about Jesus. Even it's a word used to describe the activity of publishing materials about Jesus. It's a term that denotes a mood of intentionality. We have lost that. You're God's possession, not so you can go to church every Sunday and shake hands and smile at each other. You are God's possession, not so you can show up in church and sing. You are God's possession so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were saved so you could tell others. Come on, somebody. I mean, I know it's the afternoon, but that's good preaching whether you realize it or not. <laughs> when I look at this... Uh, text of scripture I ask what does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus well the word excellencies it magnifies both the virtue of Christ and the powerful acts of Christ and the very best way to accomplish this is simply by talking to others about the sacrificial death and the marvelous resurrection of Jesus you see it is in the cross where we see the holiness of Christ It's in the cross where we see the love of Christ. We see the obedience of Christ. We see the substitutionary death of Christ. We see the holy paying for the sins of the unholy. We see the just nature of God. We see the great wrath of God being unleashed. And in the resurrection, we see victory over sin and death. We see God the Father accepting his son's sacrifice as sufficient payment for our sin. Had the resurrection not occurred, our faith would be void and nothing. But the resurrection not only shows that Jesus can impart life to you, but the resurrection also is God's great amen to his sacrifice on the cross. It is God receiving his death as sufficient. When you begin to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, you talk about our story. Our story is about a man named Jesus who died for the sin of the world, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and I love that text, right? Why a borrowed tomb? Because he only needed it three days. Can I get a witness, right? He got up from the grave after that. He called us into a relationship with him, and the gospel hits you on its way to somebody else. This is what we're supposed to do. If we're not sharing Jesus, what are we doing? If we're not about the great commission of making disciples everywhere, I don't understand what we are doing as the people of God. makes no sense to me. So what did Jesus do? I love the text. Back to it. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The word for darkness here has been used to describe an evil world. It speaks of the abode of evil spirits. It's even been used to describe a gloomy hell. It's been used to describe the blindness to the truth of the gospel. So somebody asked the question, well, which one did Jesus call us out of? An evil world, an abode of evil spirits, a gloomy hell, or blindness to the truth? Here's the good news. He called you out of every single one of them. But he didn't just call us out of darkness. He put us in his marvelous light. God the Father now sees in you the righteousness of his only Son. You were once dead to God, but now you are alive. You were once blind to the truth, but now you can see. You remember the blind man who made his way to see Jesus. The religious came to him and they said, you better give God glory for this. We know this man, Jesus, he's a sinner. I love the blind man. John 9, 25, he says, whether Jesus was a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I once was blind, but now I can see. We must never forget why we exist. Verse 10, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the Bible actually says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You know what that means? That means if you're redeemed, you ought to say so. And you ought to say it to everybody you come into contact with. Got my hair cut last week to match my shoes. I've been getting my hair done by the same person for a few years now. And I always like to find somebody who doesn't know the Lord to cut my hair because it just gives a great opportunity to share the gospel. So I'm sitting in the chair, I've already spoken with her before about the gospel, but as I'm sitting there getting my hair done, she begins to talk about her dog that isn't doing well. The dog is going to die. The dog's name is Gucci. (laughs) She said, I'm so nervous about Gucci, I'm afraid Gucci's about to go to the rainbow. Are y'all listening? I didn't know dogs went to the rainbow, I thought they all went to heaven, but anyway, I. Look for that opportunity, right? I want to come in before I go and sit down in that chair. I'm already prayed up. Lord Jesus, open the door for me to be able to once again share the gospel of Jesus with someone who has become a friend now, who if she dies without the Lord Jesus Christ, according to God's word, which is truth, she will go to hell, and that bothers me. So as I sit with her, Lord, open up an opportunity for me to be able to share. And She started talking about Gucci, and I said, thank you, Jesus. What do you mean by this rainbow? What do you think is going to happen when people die? She begins to share with me her personal opinion about what's going to happen when she she feels like there's going to be a great reunion. Everybody's going to be there, her family, her friends, people she's known all her life, and she's loved. And She's going to enter into that place and just be a place of bliss. I said, well, where do you get this information? Well, this is just kind of what I've come to conclude in my own life, she said. Based on what? Well, based, again, she says, on my personal opinion. I said, you know what's happening here, right? Now, she's cutting my hair, y'all with me? (laughs) I said, I'm not trying to be mean to you, but we know each other, so I'm just going to shoot you straight. When you base your understanding of the afterlife on your personal opinion, you're presupposing that you possess all the knowledge necessary to make such a truth claim. Do you think you know everything there is to know about eternity? Not at all, she said. So as a matter of fact, if you lined up 10 people and asked them what their idea of eternity was, all 10 would have a different answer. You know what that means? Not all of them can be right. Are y'all listening? <laughs> now, I wasn't yelling at her like I yelled at y'all, I was being sweet. But I began to say to her that's why I love the fact that there's a man who has died and been resurrected. And gone on into glory, who has said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God the Father but through me. And the message that you and I deliver is not our personal opinion. We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching Jesus and Him crucified. And when you go out and you begin to share the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to make sure that you share with them that Jesus died for their sin and that He was resurrected. And that all men must repent and trust in Jesus. Y'all listening to me? Because this is massive, right? People come back and they're like, man, I'll tell you what I've been witnessing this week. What did you do? I invited them to church. I mean, that's good. And I'm fired up you've invited them to church. But that's not all there is to it, bro. You need to invite them to Jesus. And when we as pastors begin to look at our congregations as missionaries, What it will do is radically change how we actually deliver the Word of God. We will come into the pulpit saying, I've got to equip these missionaries to be on mission when they hit their work, when they hit their neighborhoods, when they hit their extracurricular activities. This is massive. They've got to know how to share the gospel. Can I just mess around for a minute here? Because here's what I've discovered, right? There have been people who've been in church for 50, 60, 70 years who've never shared the gospel. And I began to talk with our church and encourage them to share the gospel. And some come to me and they say, well, I just don't know how to do it. You've been in church all your life. What do you mean you don't know how to do it? What did Jesus do? He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. We must repent and we must believe. Get out there and tell somebody. Are, are y'all listening? I don't understand why that's such a big deal. Anyway, people drive me crazy is what I'm trying to say. Which leads me really to the last point, and I want you to jot this one down. We must not let our own sin silence us. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now, we're all aliens in the sense that this place is not our home. Somebody say amen to that. So the Bible declares that our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers in the sense that we're just passing through during our time of stay here on the earth. This is not all there is to our lives, thank the Lord. And what Peter says is while we're hanging out here on earth bragging on Jesus like we're set aside to do, we need to make sure that we abstain from our own fleshly lust. Now, the word abstain means to avoid and keep our distance. So what are we called to keep our distance from? The answer is our fleshly lust. This speaks of our deep desires and our longings for that which is unholy. And this is best described as strong desires motivated by selfishness. And Peter isn't playing here in this text. He says that our fleshly lust wage war against the soul. That is, our fleshly lusts line up like a military fleet, to engage in battle against our own souls. The worst enemy of our souls is our own fleshly cravings. And one commentator said this, your selfish desires are mounting a full military campaign against your spiritual vitality and growth Consistently satisfying our desires in a manner contrary to the word of God or consistently giving in to sinful desires will ultimately tear down the believer. And to entertain such desires may appear attractive or harmless, but they are enemies which will inflict harm on the Christian soul, making us spiritually weak and ineffective. And here's what we know too. We keep the verse in its context. Peter has just told us why we were brought out of darkness into his light. That is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. But here's what we know. When we give in to our own sinful, fleshly cravings, we lose the spiritual energy to brag on Jesus. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Strength to do what? Strength to carry out the call of God in our lives. What is that call? Go and make disciples everywhere. That is the call. But if you find that you are not actively and intentionally engaged in going to make disciples everywhere, it's evidence that you've lost your strength. And when you lose your strength, you lose your joy. And when you don't have the joy of the Lord, the last person you're going to talk about to others is the Lord. So what is the enemy going to do? He's going to entice your fleshly desires because he knows if he can get you to give in to your own sin, it will zap your strength, zap your joy, and ultimately steal your witness for Jesus. So why is the church so silent on the gospel? I'm convinced it's because the church is so sinful. Y'all ain't out there, are you? No, we're harboring all of our sins. And as a result of that, we're losing our effectiveness. So this afternoon I brought with me a quick little something to show you here. Y'all have seen this before. I, I will, you know, disclaimer here. I'm not a cheerleader. Y'all all all right with that? I am. (laughs) So I'm not but I did, you know, it's amazing what you can get from people you know on Facebook. This is uh, one of those bullhorns. That's what the cheerleaders use. They cheer on the team, don't they? You've seen them. They put their mouth in there to scream as loud as they can. Now, here's the amazing thing. When you came to faith in the Lord Jesus, you almost fell. When you came in to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you were given a bullhorn immediately the day you came to know Jesus. And you know what God said to the seven-year-old who got saved? Go and tell others. To the 80-year-old who got saved, what do he say? Go and tell others. Here's, here's the bullhorn. Just begin to shout it out. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you are redeemed, you ought to say so. And I will also add, Jesus says, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And this is massive. If you are not fishing, you are not following Jesus. If you're not sharing the gospel with those who are far from God, then you cannot claim to be following the Jesus of Scripture. You may have made up a Jesus in your mind that does not even exist. Because those who are following Jesus, Jesus takes the responsibility to make them fishers of men. <laughs> I'm not making a lot of friends this afternoon, I, I can sense. But you got the bullhorn, you ought, to, you ought to shout it out. My youngest daughter, one of the greatest things that I ever had the opportunity to see when I came home, is uh, she was sitting outside with our neighbor across the street. We'd been praying for this family that they'd come to faith in Jesus And my youngest daughter, Marley, she's sitting out there with the young man who's her age across the street. They're sitting there right on our sidewalk, and she's got her Bible out, open, sitting crisscross applesauce. Y'all with me on that? I'm politically correct. All right? So she's sitting there. He's sitting across, and and she comes in the house. I said, Marley, what in the world are you doing? She said, I was telling him how to get saved. I said, You got to be kidding me. What did you tell him? I told him he was a sinner. And that we were all sinners. I told him that Jesus died for him and got up from the dead. And, then she, and here's what she said. And, and I made him repeat it back to me. Are you listening? She, she was eight years old doing this. What we were, this is just a random, this is pretty slick. What I was discipling some guys at the church I was pastoring. And I was teaching them how to share the gospel. So we were going out to share Jesus. So I would share. They would kind of watch. And, you know, that's how they were learning. Well, I had already shared the gospel with our across-the-street neighbor. Her name is Donna. She's not given her heart to Christ yet. She is spiritual, but she doesn't know Jesus. And so one day I'm driving out. I'm going to pick up these guys that I've been discipling so that we can go and share the gospel, and Donna's in her front yard. So I pull out the back of my driveway, and I roll the window down. I say, Donna! Got a quick question for you. She comes over to the truck. I said, "I got a couple of guys that I've been teaching how to share Jesus with other people. You mind if I bring them over here and let them talk to you?" Are y'all Are y'all listening? You know what she said to me? Yeah, honey, bring them on over. So I went to the church. I picked up these two guys. I said, I got us a person to go talk to tonight. Y'all get in the car. We drive over to her house. I pull up. I walk. She's still out in the front yard at this time because it didn't take a very long time. And we walk up to her, and I say, Donna, these are the guys I was telling you about. And I looked at my buddy, and I said, uh, go ahead and tell her how to get saved. Are y'all, y'all all right with that? that witness training? That's legit, ain't it? Yeah. So, my man's like, uh uh uh. You know what he did? He pulled his bullhorn out and he started telling her how to give her heart to Jesus Christ. But here's what my man Peter's saying Peter's saying, whenever you give in to your fleshly cravings, it's as if you are taking this right here and muffling your witness for Jesus. Can, can I make a strong statement? This is what most Georgia Baptist believers look like. That's why we see a dramatic change in our baptisms. It's because we're seeing a dramatic change in how many people are actually going out and sharing the gospel. We've been robbed. Our witness has been silenced. Can I give you great news though? All you got to do is come to Jesus and say, Lord, clean me up. I have not been the witness you've called me to be. I see now clearly I'm supposed to be sharing. So, would you just remove that which has hindered me and let me keep shouting the message of Christ? So, the question would be if you had to present your bullhorn to everybody in the building this afternoon, would it be empty? So there's a free flow of the gospel coming out of your life? Or would it be jam-packed with sin? Have you been robbed of Great Commission ownership? And really, I would just ask the question, have you forgotten who you are? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. You once were not a people, but now you are are the people of God. All of this happens so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. Are you proclaiming? Have you forgotten why you're still here on this earth? You can go to all the go Georges you want to, but if you don't actually go and tell, it made no difference whatsoever. Doesn't matter how hyped up you got or how many goosebumps you got doesn't matter how loud you sang or how hard you clapped. If it doesn't translate into you sharing Jesus, you wasted your time this weekend. Then my last question I would throw up here for you, and this is huge, right? Has sin silenced your proclamation? Here's what I'd like to do to kind of close this session out. I'd like to pray for you. Y'all are down with that, right? And we just ask the Lord, and some of you today, that's what you need to do. You just need to say, Lord, I've lost my joy. I've lost the reason that I was saved, and I want to make that right today. So let me pray for all of us. Father, right now, speak to hearts as only you can, and we'll give you glory. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'll ask you those questions again. Have you forgotten who you are in Jesus? Jesus. The full weight of your sin, the penalty that you deserve, was taken on the cross. And at the moment of your conversion, the full weight of His righteousness was placed upon you. Have you forgotten this? And is there anything in your life that silencing? your witness, and you need freedom. So Lord, only your spirit can work in our hearts today. But I'm grateful that your word is like a hammer that can break the hard heart, sharper than any two-edged sword, And Father, I pray as we leave here, we leave once again reminded of why you saved us to begin with. That's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and everybody said,